Michael Horton, in his book, Christless Christianity, offers this. What would things look like if Satan really took control of a city? Over half a century ago, Presbyterian minister Donald Gray Barnhouse of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia offered his own scenario in his weekly sermon that was broadcast nationwide on CBS radio. Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, all the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am, and the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. And this is not to denounce sobriety or sexual purity or even cleanliness as though such things were somehow satanic. But you can have morality and good behavior and manners and church attendance. You can have all those things and not have Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is all that matters in the end. He is ultimate. And yet, as parents... We too often raise our kids as if morality and manners and behavior is what actually matters. Be a good boy. Be a good little girl. Don't embarrass the family. And as children, we we grow up trying to live our lives with enough manners and enough morals and good behavior that others will say of us, now there's a good person. It's true that someone who has Jesus, a true believer in Jesus, will, will experience a change in behavior, behavior that more and more conforms to righteousness, God's standard of righteousness, not the world's or public opinion. A life of love grows in a Christian, and it results in new behaviors and a new lifestyle. But there's a counterfeit, and it can look very similar But it is not produced by the Spirit of God, and so it is not for the glory of God. It comes from the self, and it glorifies the self. And this counterfeit is so dangerous because good behavior and morality can fool a person into thinking that they are a good person. And because they are a good person, they have Christ, and they have an eternity in heaven. Satan will be glad for you to be moral and well-behaved as long as it keeps you from turning from your self-righteousness and trusting in Christ. And it's my conviction that that most of the so-called churches in our country are the kind of church Barnhouse describes, Christless churches, filled with morality and manners and people trying to be good people, but not driven along by the gospel, not worshiping Jesus, not enjoying him, not living in glad submission to his good authority because Christ is not preached. Tragically, people fill these churches believing it helps them to be a good person, believing they can balance the scales, making up for bad acts with good deeds and acquiring the favor of God by their religious and moral acts. 
Well, let me give you an example of how this plays out. In such a church, you might hear a preacher say something like this. I've dealt with thousands of people over the years, and I can just tell you that 99.9% .9 of them are good people. They may, they may make some bad choices, but deep down they have good hearts. People are fundamentally good. They just make a poor choice now and then. Out of 1,000 people, 999 of them are good. And, and if you went out on the street and asked people, if you took a poll, how many would disagree with that? Almost nobody. Jesus said in Luke 5.31, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So you un understand the reasoning in these churches. Why, why preach Christ if no one actually needs him? He came to call sinners to repentance. Where would we even find one of these sinners? I don't know. I mean, who needs Jesus if deep down we all have good hearts? Unless we don't. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So really, all these efforts to, to be good and to do good on our own apart from Christ are just really just putting lipstick on the proverbial pig. The good manners and, and smiling faces mask only fearful despair or wicked self-righteousness. Good behavior and morality, a counterfeit to real life. So contrast that picture with what we're seeing from our text in Acts 11. A church where Christ is preached. And notice what that kind of church looks like, where, where Christ is preached and believed and there is a striking impact in the lives of people and in the trajectory of this church. Very difficult to account for these transformed lives and this transformed church apart from the gospel, apart from the good news that God saves sinners in Jesus and the life of Christ in these people. I'm going to back up just a little bit, <clears throat> go back to when Jesus was resurrected and still on the earth. Matthew 28, 19. <clears throat> he said this, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. The church was given marching orders way back, Matthew 28, 19. And then Acts 1, 8, again, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That is the playbook for Acts, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, marching orders. They're sent out. But now for the most part, Acts 11, we're 20-something years later, there hasn't been much marching. Go, make disciples of all nations, and they really haven't gone anywhere. They haven't gone far, and they're just now starting to see the significance of this all nations part. 
That Jesus is, is not just for the people of Israel. Israel was always to be the means by which Jesus was made known to the world, to the nations. So on an airplane a bunch of years ago, we landed, we're coming into the gate, and the, the flight attendant got on the loudspeaker and said, well, like my dad told me the day I turned 18, you need to get your things and get up on out of here. That's a bit like what's happening to the church in Jerusalem. They were sent out, but, but they hadn't gone. They, they weren't going. Now we read there's a church in Antioch. How did they get there? Well, verse 19 tells us it had to do with the persecution that started back with Stephen, Acts 6 and 7. Because of this persecution, believers are scattered. Get your things and get up and go. And not to make light of the persecution, it was awful, it was painful. Stephen lost his life, for example. And God was sovereign over every moment of it. He uses it to accomplish his purposes, to get the gospel to the nations. It's hard, but it's for the good of his children and for the good of his church. We tend to think suffering, it's a sign that God has abandoned us or that God has lost control or somehow God's not good. But God uses pain and he uses suffering to remind us that the things of this world are are shadows only. They're, They're not the real thing. They're not worth living for. They're not permanent. The blessings of this life are meant to remind us of the goodness of the one who gives the blessings, that we might desire him. And yet we're just so prone to settle for the shadows, to live for the temporary. Dane Orton writes this, Our heavenly gardener loves us too much to let us continue to commit soul suicide by getting more and more deeply attached to the world. Through the pain of disappointment and frustration, God weans us from the love of this world. It feels like we're being crippled, like we're dying. In point of fact, we're being freed from the counterfeit pleasures of the world. This is what God was doing with his church, moving them mercifully and sovereignly toward himself, even while he sent them out into the world, that that their joy would be in him and that they would reflect him to the world. And and we see their lives are, are transformed by the gospel. They're turned upside down, forming a church that will, of course, be imperfect, but at the same time, one that should be emulated. So we're we're given here in Acts 11 a picture of, of what a church should look like. I've identified from this passage five marks of a healthy church, and these should be in your insert if you got one. <clears throat> First of all, a healthy church is impartial. A healthy church is impartial. In, in verse 19, those who were scattered because of the persecution arose that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. These people who were bringing this word didn't know Peter's story from Acts 10 and 11, the vision and the events that followed, and Gentiles who believed receiving the Holy Spirit. All this by which Peter and subsequently others came to understand the gospel is for everyone. It's not just for Jews, but for people of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. It shouldn't have been news to them. They they should have known this. This is all throughout their scriptures. For example, Psalm 22, 27. 
All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of nations shall worship before you. The Old Testament chock full of verses that express this same idea, the missionary function of God's chosen people. They were chosen not as an end in themselves, but to be the means by which God makes himself known to the whole world, to all the nations. The scripture's full of it, but they, they didn't get it. And I would say because the proud human heart resists this idea. We, we would like to believe that there is something about us Something in us that just makes us inherently better than others. Because I'm this ethnicity or this gender or this profession or I'm from this place, I'm better. It's the heart of racism. It's pride. Wanting to believe that there's something inferior about you and something superior about me. Just inherently. And ethnicity becomes the way our proud hearts account for why we're better than other people. And this appears to be very deeply ingrained in the, in the minds of the Jews of this time. They were God's chosen people. Well, if we're chosen, we must be choice. The scripture said otherwise, but it's easy to believe when you want to believe it. But now God is tearing that down. We've seen God doing this, especially in the last couple chapters of Acts in particular, as we read about visions and angelic revelations and angelic intervention and Outward and visible manifestations of the Holy Spirit among the non-Jews, among the Gentiles. And this unusual action was necessary because the prejudices ran so deep. When these Jewish believers can see the Holy Spirit is, is now at work in the lives of these non-Jews, that they can't argue can't argue with the message that's coming into focus for them that there's actually only one race, the human race, and there's no preferred ethnicity before God. The gospel is for all nations. In verse 19, these Jewish believers bring the word, but to Jews only. But verse 20, Luke doesn't want us to miss the action described in verse 20. It's not just descriptive. It's prescriptive. It's not just what happened. It's what should have happened. It's what should happen. It's how we should operate as well. Verse 20, But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. These men of Cyprus and Cyrene were Jews, but they reached out to the Hellenists, who were Greek-speaking non-Jews. They were impartial. The gospel isn't just for people like us. The gospel isn't just for people who look like us, think like us, run in the same kind of social circles have the same social economic status, have the same education level. We sin when we rule people out because they're not like us. These men from Cyprus and Cyrene, we don't even know their names, but they acted in accordance with the gospel. The gospel that Jesus died for sinners of all kinds. These guys, I expect they were just amazed at the grace of God. God gave them a gift they didn't earn or deserve. God saved their souls in spite of the damnation they desperately deserved, in spite of their failure to live up to his perfect standard, with, with nothing that they had said or done that could commend themselves before this holy God. He saved them by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and is a complete and utter 
gift. They understood it. They believed it. They were transformed by it. And so they wanted others to know it as well. These Hellenists, they don't know Jesus. They're no better or worse than we are. Let's tell them about Jesus. They were impartial. Second, a healthy church is Christ-centered. A healthy church is Christ-centered. Verse 20, But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. What was their message that proved so effective? They preached the Lord Jesus. At this time, Antioch was a city of probably 500,000 people, is what experts estimate. It was not a Jewish city. There were some Jews there, but there were all kinds of people from all over. It was a pluralistic, cosmopolitan city. All kinds of religious practices were there. People worshipped all kinds of gods, multiple gods. If you have a god you like and you, you find another one, you can add it to your collection. But these guys were preaching the Lord Jesus, the Lord The Lord is the one who is in charge, the sovereign, the one in control, the one to whom all authority has been given. That's the Lord Jesus. He's the one who will save his people from their sins, the one who is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He's the only way. There is no other way, the only hope for sinners. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Now, who in that town is going to go for this Jesus that they're preaching? No one. No one's going to go for that. But the gospel is the power of God to salvation, Romans 1.16. Verse 21 says it like this, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. There are all kinds of churches, ministries, denominations that no longer preach the Lord Jesus. They used to. And then big-hearted, well-meaning people who just wanted everyone to know Jesus got involved to make the message more palatable. So they end up compromising the message. The, The concern is that if we speak about the Lordship of Christ, people could get offended. But when you start adjusting the message to accommodate people, to make it easier for them, you end up giving the message away. And this has happened time and again. It's great to want to reach masses of people. We'd love to have this place filled to overflowing with people worshiping King Jesus and hearing the gospel every week. But we have to do it God's way. God's way is Christ-centered. We are to preach the Lord Jesus, and, and we don't aspire to be offensive. But we realize the gospel is offensive. I would argue part of the process of coming to faith in Jesus is being offended by the gospel. The message must not change, and it must be the priority. Paul and Barnabas spent a year teaching a great many Verse 26. And we know from Paul's letters in the New Testament what his teaching was like. It is Christ-centered. Teaching to people who are hungry to hear it. Their their hearts have been changed. Instead of resisting Jesus' authority, his lordship in their lives, they, they longed for it. They want to live under it. 
They want to be taught. Furthermore, verse 26 tells us these disciples were called Christians for the first time. It means little Christ's. Quite likely it was used as an insult, a put-down by believers, those who recognized that these Christians resembled Christ in the way they lived. They resembled Christ because their lives and their church was Christ-centered. So saturated were they with Christ that they were becoming like the one they worshipped. And this insult was a great compliment. Wouldn't you love to have that said about you? That guy is such a loser. He's so much like Jesus. We'll take it, won't we? They were Christ-centered. Notice that they were kingdom-focused. A healthy church is kingdom-focused. First of all, Barnabas in particular. Verse 21, they're preaching the Lord Jesus. People are getting saved. Gentiles are believing. Amazing things are happening. Verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Words out. Big revival in Antioch. Barnabas is dispatched to check it out. Verse 23. When he came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Barnabas rolls in and he's just glad. He's not there to tell them how they should be doing this and this and how they can do this better and how it's a good thing he's there now to tell them all how to do it. He sees that God is at work, that God's favor is on these people, not because they are awesome and deserving, but because God is gracious and loving and giving. And Barnabas loves that. He's glad because he knows grace. God has been gracious to him. So he cheers them on. He encourages them. Keep going. Keep trusting. Keep centered on the Lord Jesus. His concern is for God's kingdom. He wants to see God's kingdom advance and grow. That's what it's all about. Barnabas knows it's not about him. His joy comes not from accolades or being a big deal or having people look to him. His joy comes from pointing people to Jesus Christ. He doesn't need recognition. He's forgiven. He's accepted by God. He's a child of the king. His inheritance is secure. He's been graced with everything he needs. So he's been liberated by the gospel to point others not to himself, but to the glory of King Jesus. You might know it's not always like this. Seventh grade basketball. Fargo, North Dakota. Agassiz Junior High. I wasn't as tall then as I am now. In fact, that's probably average height. And not only was I not tall, I was not a good player. But there was another guy on the team who was worse. His name was Toby. And I remember at the end of practice one day, we would take turns shooting free throws. We'd go around and shoot 10 free throws. Next guy, step up, shoot 10 free throws. And normally, Toby was lucky to hit the rim or the backboard or anything at all. But this day... Toby steps up, and he's just acing these free throws, just swishing one after another. And finally, we all just kind of looked over at him, and he smiles real big, and he says, I've been practicing. You know who didn't have a big smile? (laughs) Me. I wasn't happy one bit. Even though we were teammates Even though we were working together for the same goal, for the good of the team, a shared purpose, the success of my teammates somehow was a threat to my own self-worth. Crikey. 
How awful. And I wish I could say I've conquered this evil in my heart, but it's still a battle I have to fight. This bent towards competing with my brothers and sisters, rivalry with other churches that preach the Lord Jesus. We're on the same team. We will spend eternity together worshiping the King. We should be spending our time here on earth working together for each other and for the glory of the King. And tragically, this is just so common. Churches and their members and their pastors building their own little kingdoms, fighting for their share of some pie somewhere that they've imagined exists by the size of their budget or their buildings or their staff or their attendance or their number of baptisms, trying to make a name for themselves. It's wicked. First of all, we don't need to prove ourselves. The verdict is already in. We are in Christ. As believers in Jesus, we have union with him. So his righteousness is ours. His perfect life is ours. His inheritance is our own. We don't need other people to think we're a big deal. And it does no one any good to think we're a big deal. Second of all, he's the big deal. We are created and redeemed to make much of him, to point people to him, to reflect his glory to the world. When we compete with other Christians, when we are rivals with other churches, we absorb glory. We're not here to build our little kingdom. We're here to build his kingdom. Barnabas rolls into Antioch from Jerusalem, the mother church, the main church, the sending church, and he sees a church that has surpassed his own in many ways. Blessed in ways that his church has not been. And what does he do? He rejoices. He praises God. He encourages these believers to continue on, to keep it up. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Follow hard after him. And then he's considering, what does this church need? How can I bless this church? You know, they need good, solid Bible teaching. Well, I think Barnabas could have done it just fine, I have no doubt, but, but Barnabas knew someone who could do it even better. Verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Tarsus was 100 miles away. I don't know how Barnabas would even know for sure Saul was there, right? And he's not hopping a plane or a train or even an Uber. He hops a sandal for the sake of this new church and for the sake of the kingdom of God, he takes a shot. Goes for a long walk, hunting for Saul. Verse 26, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. We are looking forward to the day when we, as Calvary Severance and as the Calvary family, start a church in a neighboring community, somewhere like Eaton. And may we be like Barnabas, Cheering on that church, encouraging, supporting, giving as if they were us because they are us. And I'm thinking we send not just a friendly email or maybe some used curriculum. I think we send workers and leaders and tithers. And it will sting. We will feel that loss, but it will be gain for the sake of God's kingdom. And for that, may we rejoice. Back to Barnabas. Verse 24 says something really interesting about him. 
It says, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Barnabas has a quality of excellence. He's a man of high character. He's capable. He's helpful. He doesn't have ulterior motives or a hidden agenda. He's a leader who is, who is making unselfish and principled decisions. That describes Barnabas. He's a good man. What about Romans 3.12? No one does good. Or Mark 10.18, where Jesus says it as well, no one is good but God alone. We are not good on our own. We're not good by our own effort, trying to earn God's favor by being a good person. That will never work. The very motivation is sinful. It's driven by pride. It exalts the self. Barnabas, though, was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. He trusts Jesus. He trusts Jesus that his life was not his own, that it belonged to Jesus. He, he was trusting him with it. He was trusting Jesus that his sin was covered. He, he wasn't trusting in his own effort. Goodness is not a fruit of self-effort. Goodness is a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5. Barnabas was full of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. The Holy Spirit reminds us that we are children of God, not just giving us head knowledge, giving us heart knowledge, giving us affection and an experience of what it is to be a child of God. The Holy Spirit gives us awe and wonder for all that God has done to make us his own in Jesus through the cross. The Holy Spirit brings to mind the words of Jesus. To be filled with the Spirit is, at a minimum, to be filled with God's Word. Ephesians 5.18 and Colossians 3.16. Barnabas was full of God's Word. He knew the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit gives us a new, a new heart at conversion. Ezekiel 11.19. We go from rebels to God to living in glad submission to God's authority. That's such a miracle when that happens. And especially in Acts, being full of the Holy Spirit was being empowered for witness and ministry. Being all about making God known. So Barnabas, full of the Holy Spirit, had these realities. He, he was increasingly who he was created to be. Something is good if it is, a, if it is effective for what it was created to be. How do you know if you have a good minivan, for example? Is it good for what it was created to be? Does it get you where you need to go in style and with efficiency? <laughs> because if your minivan is good for storing fast food wrappers, or if it's a great place for kids to play, but it doesn't get you where you need to go in style and with efficiency, then it's not a good minivan. It's not what it was created to be. Barnabas was made to reflect the glory of God. That's what he was created to be and to do, to point others to him, to advance the kingdom of God, not his own. And so he was a good man by the power of the Holy Spirit in him. His life was characterized by reflecting God's glory to the world, making Jesus known, pointing people to him. That's what he was made for. So if you want to be a good person, quit trying to be a good person. If you're trying to be a good person, most likely your effort is focused on either living up to man-made standards, trying to earn the approval of people or a certain group of people in order to be a good person, or 
trying to live up to God's standard of goodness, as if you could somehow be good enough or do enough to be good. And that effort in itself is sinful. Every step in that direction is evil because its very motivation is self-glorification. And think about it. If you could have some measure of success in being a good person in God's sight, what would the result of that be? Self-righteousness. We would do that for our own glory, and we are to do everything we do for the glory of God. And if that's where you find yourself this morning, just exerting all this effort to be a good person, to live up to some standard that you know you just fall short of, you need to repent and believe the gospel. Turn from trusting in your own goodness and trusting in your own ability to be good and your own ability to run your life and commit your life to Christ. Trusting in Him, in His sacrificial death on your behalf, that that was enough. And live and surrender to Him. Focus your effort not on behaviors, first of all, but on connecting with Jesus Christ and abiding in Him. Fourth mark of a healthy church. A healthy church is generous. Verses 27 through 30. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So this is the kind of prophecy that involves predictions of future events. And this prophet Agabus is foretelling a coming famine. So how do we know that Agabus spoke by the Spirit? Well, Luke says so, for one thing. Additionally, he points out the prediction came true. You might hear a lot of folks these days claiming this kind of prophetic gift. And at the same time, they're often wrong. And they might claim a 70% success rate with their predictions. But that's not good according to God's standard. Deuteronomy 18, you have it. I won't read it. It's in your handout, I believe. But we shouldn't listen to such prophets. Larger point here is the generosity of the disciples. New church, they have needs of their own. But they determine to support the sending church. They're not coerced. They're not guilted. Everyone according to his ability is what it says. Now, the church in Acts, at various points, we see this. It was so good at, at sharing with others that, that sometimes people wonder if what's being promoted is communism. It was nothing like what we know as communism. <laughs> they had private property. They owned things. And because they owned things, they were able to give them away. They could give. It's not giving when it's coerced or taken from you, and it's certainly not from a generous heart when it's taken from you and you had no option. These believers were able to give because they understood they had been given much. They had an infinitely greater treasure in Christ than the one that they were giving away. They, they knew the joy of giving was better than the joy of having. They understood the gospel. In the gospel, God gives. He gives his son for sinners. The gospel had them turned inside out. 
So now instead of trying to find life from an inward self-focus, they had discovered that life is found in outward giving, in an outward giving orientation to life, a generosity of life. A healthy church is generous. And finally, a healthy church is God-favored. Number five, a healthy church is God-favored. Verse 24 said, a, a great many people were added to the Lord. Verse 21, a great number who believed turned to the Lord. How do we account for this? Great numbers of people getting saved, remarkable generosity, folks overcoming prejudices to share the gospel, people eager to learn God's word and live under its authority. Was, was this just a matter of really effective church growth strategies? Was the preaching really that great? Maybe they figured out just the perfect blend of contemporary and traditional music. Maybe they, they did that. Psalm 127, verse 1, says it like this. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. 1 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul says this. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither, he who, nor he, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but God who gives the growth. And same idea, verse 21 from Acts 11. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. We sometimes wonder, why water if God's just going to give the growth? Right? Why build the house if it may be in vain? Why share the gospel if it's God who saves? Why pray if God is sovereign? And I think what, what is sometimes at the bottom of that is our desire for sovereignty. We want to be sovereign. We want to feel decisive interactions. You get in your minivan, you push down the gas pedal, and it goes. Right? You... You push the button on the microwave, it fires up, and your food gets hot. And we think that's just how it should be. You do the thing, you create the action. We become quickly frustrated if it doesn't happen. But think about this. Suppose our actions were decisive. Suppose we were sovereign in some sense. Suppose you could pray, and, and because of your prayers, life just happened the way you prayed it would. Imagine you, you're presenting the gospel to someone and, and you could bring them to faith. If your technique was right, if your words were persuasive, if, if you were adept at answering all the objections. What would it be like if you could bring the decisive action to someone's spiritual growth? If you taught the right things the right way and, and their spiritual life would then just take off because of you. Could you be anything other than proud and self-righteous, if that was true? Rightfully so. You have every reason to boast. You did it. You're responsible. The, the glory belongs to you. But we're not actually sovereign. We don't act decisively. We are entirely and rightfully dependent on the favor of the Lord. He's sovereign. 
We pray and we love and we serve and we preach and we share the gospel out of obedience that God would use what we do and how we live for his glory because we're living in his world and we're living for his glory. And because he is gracious, because he's so merciful, we ask, we pray that he would save we pray that our lives would be transformed. We, we pray that our lives and our church would be full of the knowledge of Him. We act in obedience for His sake. And whatever favor we have in our lives and our church is exactly that, a favor, unearned and undeserved blessing from God to whom belongs all the glory. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful for what you have done in our midst at Calvary Severance. And it's all because of you, because of your favor, that we have done nothing to earn or deserve. And so may we rest in your sovereignty. May we live for you out of obedience. Um, may your spirit be at work in us that we might be the kind of people you have created us to be. That live for you, that make you known live for your glory. Thank you for all that you do. I give you praise in Jesus' name.